So um, we have to buy a new cable for this thing. I love this projector because this spot's empty, which is going to mess me up because I'm going to be talking more with you guys than with you guys. It's not that I don't like you. Typically, you guys are the good side and they're the bad side. So, yeah. If you think about it, anytime I, there's a good versus evil type thing, it's pretty much always you guys that are the bad side. There we go. So, we are back on the gospel according to Mark. Uh, last week we skipped it uh, because it was Resurrection Day. And uh, this week we're back there. So, we are on the beginning of the eighth chapter. And if you remember anything about the week before at all, we are actually starting a new cycle. Because what happened is at halfway through chapter 6 all the way through verse 7 is this, this thing that happens where Jesus feeds people, then they cross the lake or the sea, uh, then he gets in a dispute with uh, Pharisees slash Sadducees, then he teaches his disciples the difference between what he's saying and what the, uh, what the Pharisees are saying, and then he does miraculous signs and healings of people, and it ends with... What we talked about was the word doxology. That's not what's used in Scripture there, but it's what's happening. The word doxology is literally just, it means glory saying. Okay, It's what you say about what God has done. Uh, the, the famous one is the song called the doxology, which is praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Because what you're doing is you're responding to what God has done. And that was the cycle that took place at halfway through chapter 6, all the way through chapter 7. And the reason I say it's a cycle is because chapter 8 is the exact same thing happening again. Not the same events, the same cycle at a different time. So we're going to start that now. Starting at verse 1. Boy, Charlie is talkative tonight. I like it. No, there's nothing to be sorry about. I like it. I love the fact we have, we have a baby and every now and then we have babies that are making noise in church. Church should have babies being noisy. He's praying. He's charismatic. <laughs> Charlie's a tongue speaker. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> those of you who are raised in church are like, what's this tongue speaking? <laughs> or not? This is what it says starting in verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. I'm sorry, our projector's not back there, so I can't see if we're, we're at the right spot. All right, I have compassion for these people. They are, have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When they had taken the seven loaves and given and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketful of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of 
Damarotheon. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't look that one up. I usually look up pronunciation. So guys, I want to talk about a story that's going to sound similar to something we've already done. Now, the other story I think was, was uh, fascinating uh, in the sense that, that uh, there's a little boy that's involved in that story. He's not mentioned in Mark, he's mentioned in, in Matthew. But a little boy gives up his lunch. And I, I just think that sometimes uh, Jesus likes to see who will be available for using and to give them really, really cool stories. Um, I just think the thought of a little boy getting into a story competition with people like, hey, I saw Jesus do this, I saw Jesus do this, and a little boy being like, I fed 5,000 people. I just think that's awesome. But when I read this scripture, well, I have one really big question. Now, after you hear this, maybe you have the same question. For those of you who've been here every week and and you remember about four or five weeks ago us reading where Jesus feeds 5,000 men. Now, that's the men that are counted. Um, So it could have been up to 25,000 people that he fed the first time. And here we have 4,000 men. Good chance there were 4,000 women. Could have been more, could have been less. We don't know. Would have been kids there. So let's just be safe here. Jesus probably fed 15,000 people here. Oh, seven loaves of fish. All right, seven loaves, not a fish. That would be a weird fish. But seven loaves and a few fish. I don't know if you know this or not. That's a big deal, okay? I haven't fed 15,000 people before off seven loaves. But I'm thinking that's pretty difficult to do. It's a miracle. It's a miraculous thing. For those who were here when we talked about this first time, maybe you have the same question I do. My question is, what? Is, what? Go ahead, please. Yeah. This is not like this happened 20 years before. Okay, Jesus' ministry lasted three years. Jesus was a carpenter. He probably started that profession as a 13-year-old and was apprenticed and moves up. And at the age of 30, he starts what we, we refer to in the church world as his public ministry. In other words, he is no longer working as a carpenter for his primary means of support, but instead he is bouncing around uh, mainly Galilee, but all of Jerusalem, excuse me, Judea and Galilee. He's bouncing around there. And that is what he does with the majority of his time for three years. We do not know how long a time period there was between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, but I can guarantee you it was less than a year. And my thought is, if you see Jesus and you participate with him, feed up to 25,000 people, that's not the type of thing you forget. Okay, you know, maybe it is, but I'm not, I'm, I don't think you're going to be like, oh yeah, I think he did something like that once before. And my thought, and Jesse, I mean, you nailed it. It's like, what are the disciples thinking? Jesus goes, hey, there are lots of people here. We need to feed them. And I'm thinking the disciples thought ought to be like, yeah, let's do it again. Can you imagine what a party is like if you're one of these people there and you're like, oh, I want to listen to Jesus, but I am so hungry and there is nothing to eat. And suddenly people just start bringing baskets and baskets and baskets of food. And there's a reason the story says, I'll get to you in just one second, okay? There's a reason the story says that they were satisfied. It doesn't mean they each had like one mouthful. So there's a hint of that in Scripture. It's like it would cost eight months' wages to get one mouthful. They ate as much as they want. Think of the party that's happening. Now, yes, ma'am. Was it customary? Um, I don't know if they had, you know, they had like, going around. 
Yes, they actually, obviously not televangelists because the TV didn't exist until about 200 AD. But, um, but yes. No, it was actually the opposite. The customary thing would be if, well, think about it. All right, some of you raised in the church world, you know this. If I come to your house, what are you supposed to do? Yes, and you're supposed to feed me. Exactly. For some reason, you're supposed to give the preacher the worst, which I just think is kind of stupid because Jesus is like, you know, if you're going to be first, you should be last. So it's like, you know, we should really treat the preacher. I'm not encouraging this because I would like to be paid, but maybe you should give me your worst food and be like, yeah, you can sleep on the couch, bud. (laughs) But instead, it's the opposite. You You have visiting preachers. You have evangelists that go out, but also you have philosophers. If you ever hear the Stoics, the Stoics were traveling philosophers. Uh, not just them, lots of people. And the custom would be, if I came to your area, it would be an honor for you to feed me. And Jesus does the exact opposite. Yes, ma'am? Um, how do you count? When he says men, for, a Jew, for Jewish counting, it is 13 and above. Yes, it's one. Uh, numbering for, for a Jewish... Uh, Ancient Near Eastern Jew is what's known as inclusive uh, numbering. The best example of this is the resurrection. How many days was Jesus in the grave? Three. All right, now think realistically the way we would count modern-wise. We know he went in just prior to six on Friday night. We know he was there through Saturday at six. But we also know that he got out of the grave just after six on Sunday morning. It's like 36 hours. But as far as a good Jew is concerned, Jesus was in the grave three days. Why? Because he was in there Friday, he was in there Saturday, he was in there Sunday. If you're any part, then you have the whole. So you're one, the second, you're in your first year of life. Whereas we count by what you finish. I am 44 years old. Now, that doesn't mean I'm actually 44 years old. What it means is I've had 44 full years of life. But technically speaking, I'm 44 years old and however many days. Does that make sense? Okay. So, Jesus feeds them. And I am wondering, you know, what are the disciples thinking? These are for sure two different yes, these are for sure two different occurrences. Isn't that weird? So, in, in Matthew, there's the feeding of the 5,000, and then there's the feeding of the 4,000. This coincides with the 4,000 in Matthew? Yes. Which is right after the 5,000. Yes. Because in Mark, there's the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. This is a second event. So here's what I think. All right. Yes, ma'am. I mean, is it really that surprising, though? Because don't they do this a lot? Like, God tells them stuff, and then they just don't get it, and they're really dumb for a really long it's, time. Like, I mean, like, no. Like, you read it, and they're just like, they don't get it. Yeah. But I would change the they to we. Because I think you're right. It's not just this situation. This happens a lot. Okay, Matthew six thirty through forty two is actually the feeding of the five thousand that was just mentioned. He'd just done this. It could have been anywhere from three months to a year beforehand. And I don't think they forget. I don't think they're like, oh, I, I completely. But maybe, maybe why would he do it again? Or maybe worse, 
Let's go to this. You ever heard somebody say something and you know that you know the answer, but you pretend like you don't because you don't want to get involved because maybe you don't know the answer? Okay, As, and I'm going to think student-wise here, but think of all the times your teachers have asked you a question back when some of us were in school, back now that some of you are in school. Think of the times your teachers have asked a question, but you don't say anything. Why? Because you might be wrong. But you're almost entirely sure you're right. But there's always a small chance you might be wrong. And most of us in the room hate being embarrassed. Or hate being put into a situation to where we have to take a risk. Now risks have great potential, but they also have great danger. You know, when you do something risky, there's always the chance that you can get hurt. There's a reason that couch potatoes don't have broken bones. Because there's no risk in being a couch potato other than to your cardiovascular system. Don't get into that with me. I know it hurts you. But if I go out as, as my middle-aged self and I'm like, I'm going to go skateboarding right now. I'm going to break something. Because there's risk involved in it. I could just be incredible. and be like, wow, this guy's like Tony Hawk. He's incredible. Or I could fall and knock out all my teeth. And then my Alabama accent comes out. And people are like, he's just a drunk redneck. Because I have a concussion. And I think the disciples were probably all standing around like, who, me? <laughs> what? Because Jesus says, you know, we need to feed them. And you would think they'd be like, that's awesome, let's do it again. But the second, well, this is what I know of Jesus from the New Testament. The second somebody's like, we need to do this, Jesus goes, you're right, you do. Jesus, will you heal me? Yes, I will heal you. Go and show yourself to the, the priest. Jesus, will you heal me? Yes, I will. Let me spit in your eye. Jesus is picky like that. Because when he does his miracles, he does them through us. Okay, that's messing me up a little bit. <laughs> he had a thing in his, on his chin. Jesus works incarnationally. In other words, God likes to work through people. If you look at the vast majority of, of miracles in the Bible, they are almost always done by him working through somebody else. The exception to the rule is God working ex nihilo from nothing. The exception to the rule is God working without involving humans in it. If you think about the miracles that you know, even if you weren't raised in church, you probably heard stories about Moses parting the Red Sea. But we all know that Moses did not part the Red Sea. Otherwise, that little cartoon that shows Moses fishing and he puts his bobber in the water and the water separates would be true. Moses didn't separate the water. God separated the water through Moses. You look at almost every miracle of Jesus, almost every miracle that God does in the Old Testament, and he uses people to do them. So it's dangerous when Jesus starts saying, I would like to feed everybody here because I think all the disciples go know that he's going to be like, and I'm going to do it through you. And I think their response is like, who, me? <laughs> me? Where do we buy all this food? Because Jesus is tricky like that. 
He wants to bring his kingdom, but he doesn't want to bring his kingdom by him doing all the work. He wants to bring his kingdom by you doing all the work. He just puts the power that you need in you. But let's be honest. I would much rather him bring his kingdom by him doing it all and me sitting on the, on the sideline and just getting to be like, yeah, I know him. <laughs> I know him. He's awesome. He's, he's cool. Think of the disciples feeding, um, feeding, or, and, and think of what it would have been like if Jesus was like, I'm going to feed everybody here and I'm going to use you. And they take the basket with one loaf of bread in it and they, they walk to the first person and that person grabs the loaf of bread and then there's nothing else there. Who's going to get blamed? You could, yeah, you could say Jesus, but it's the person with the basket who's going to get blamed. <laughs> I think the disciples were like, who, me? And I completely understand it. Because it's so easy for us to forget that we were created by a God who wants to work through us. Matter of fact, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? He doesn't say, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry about where we're going to get this. I've got it covered. His first question is, how many loaves do you have? If we're going to feed 4,000 people here, if we're going to feed 4,000 men plus another 10,000 women and children, how many resources do you have right now? It wasn't zero. It was seven loaves. I don't know about you, but I like my food. I'm all for giving you my food if I have enough for myself. If I've got like five loaves and all all I want is three, and you're like, hey, Robert, I'm kind of hungry. I'm like, that's awesome. But I'm not very generous when I'm really, really hungry. And you come up like, Robert, I'm starving. I'm like, well, it stinks to be you. You should have brought your own lunch. How many loaves do you have? Here's the problem I think we have in the church. We forget that most of Jesus' miracles weren't really miracles in the sense of something extraordinary. They were literally just Jesus reaching into the kingdom and pulling back a little small part of it. When Jesus does a miracle, what he does is he says, it's not right for you to be hungry. In the kingdom of God, you will never be hungry. I'll bring you back a small taste of that right now. I'll reach into the way things are supposed to be and I'll bring that back. You shouldn't be hungry. You shouldn't be blind. In the the kingdom that I am bringing about, you will not die. I'll bring back just a small taste of that. It's not verbalized, no. That is me paraphrasing slash doing it. Because um, what he's doing is not anything, it's, it's beyond nature, but it's just, it's what the kingdom of God is all about. Kingdom of God, there will no, be, no longer be death. There will no longer be tears. Uh, we will not be hungry. He's just bringing that back a little bit. But he asks us to be a part of that over and over and over again. Matter of fact, he asks us to serve. Because his very nature is serving. He describes it this way. He says, instead, and this is talking about leadership, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Now, we hear that. Those of us who were raised in the church, we hear it to the point that it no longer blows us away. But some of us who weren't raised in the church are like, that's stupid. Because we know that's not the way it works. 
to be completely honest, it's not the way it usually works in the church. We have taken things and turned them into positions of power when they were supposed to be acts of service. Have you ever seen the Pope bow down and, and wash someone's feet? I have. Not personally. I mean, obviously, it's not like, hey, hey there, Benedict, how are you? Um, I mean, he does it every year. And it's not an act of service. It's a symbolic act that points out his power. If you go to a Baptist church and watch the Lord's Supper, now we are a Baptist church, but we do things differently. If you watch the Lord's Supper, the pastor is the last one to receive the Lord's Supper. And it goes in positions of power. The deacons receive it just before the Lord's Supper. The deacons' wives receive it just before that. We've taken the very act of those who should be first will be last. Um, and we've turned it around. But Jesus' statement was absolutely absurd. And at the end, he says, you know, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And if you think about the stuff he did, it's incredible. We're not dumbfounded by it enough anymore. It should blow us away. Jesus washing the disciples' feet, which he does on the night he is betrayed. We think of that as a symbolic act now, but we should think of it like President Barack Obama or President Ronald Reagan, whoever you like, suddenly coming to your neighborhood and saying, I would like to shine your shoes. And we'd be like, you can't do that. Jesus does this incredible act, not as some symbol of service, but as real service. And then he says, if we're going to be like him, we should do the exact same thing. Matter of fact, a verse that is quite often quoted in a lot of churches talking about how we receive grace is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says this. It says, whoops, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And this first part here is always used quite often to say, See, you don't earn it, you don't earn it, you don't earn it. But you're saved by grace, Why? For these good works that God has already prepared for you. You're saved by grace so that God can work through you. He saves us by forgiving us of our sins, which is great. But He loves us enough to say, now come on board and be my partner. And so often in church, we don't serve. Or we think that that's the church's job as an organization. But it's the church's job as in body of Christ, as in everybody in this room. If we're doing things right, I should serve the least of anybody in here. Not because I'm the pastor and therefore I'm elevated, but because I'm the pastor and my job is to help you find spots to serve. And I'm so busy helping you find spots to serve that I don't get to serve much. But instead we reverse it around. I know of people who don't do anything until the church sets up something. You know, we feed at the place of peace or we do something like that. And it's like, oh, I, I love to serve. When's the church going to do it again? It's like, no, you can serve now. So here's what I would like you to remember. I think Jesus served in three ways. I think he was available. If you read again and again, he is available to the people around him. He... he uh, sees people in his ordinary life and he makes himself available. This is a situation where the blind man, uh, there's a blind man, and Jesus says, what is it you want of me? Jesus is interrupted constantly. 
He is walking and being interrupted. And he doesn't respond to that interruption by, I'm doing something really important right now. Instead, he goes, what is it you need? What is it you want? And most of us are pretty busy. Work, family, school, friends. I'm not saying that order. (laughs) Hopefully work and school are, are not the most important there. But we have enough in our life. We need to be available. Jesus was constantly available to be interrupted. And that doesn't mean that he neglected the important. But he understood that the important were the people around him. There were times where Jesus said no to people. Because he had to be doing something else. But he was always open to someone interrupting him. And he didn't treat them as though they were interruption. Here's the next thing. Uh, Jesus, whoops, there we go, was sacrificial. Now that seems easy. But, but Jesus gave up his time. He gave up his, his position. He gave up um, his, his importance. See, I hear people every now and then say, my job is my ministry. That's really true if it's sacrificial. Your job should be your ministry. Your, your, your vocation should be how God works through you. But it's not your vocation if you're getting paid $40 an hour every time you do something. And, and I say that more so for me. I know plenty of pastors who say, oh, my ministry is my service. No, it's not. It's your salary. Okay, so many of us in the room have jobs. You can minister through your jobs and you should minister through your jobs. You should minister through teaching. You should minister through heating and, and, and air conditioner repair. You should minister by delivering bottles of Coca-Cola. That is important and you can minister through that. But we can't use our jobs as just an excuse and say, oh, that's my ministry. Instead, we sacrifice. Maybe you repair for somebody who can't pay. Maybe you you help a student out who truthfully doesn't deserve the help because he or she's been lazy. I just pointed at my wife, so it would be a she, almost guaranteed, um, because of her, her career. Because maybe it's a boss that doesn't deserve it. Jesus sacrificed. And you can look up example after example after example. That's the easy one. Here's the other one. Jesus was personal. Jesus did not wait for his, just his religious duty in formal situations to serve. Jesus served while he was walking. This is the story of Jesus uh, spending time with the woman at the well. Some of you have read it before this wonderful story where basically Jesus talks with this woman and she says, why are you talking to me? (laughs) I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. You should not be talking to me at all. And Jesus gives her his time and shows her that he loves her. See, you should not be waiting for the church to do service. You should be serving so that the church is trying to catch up. We should have a hard time as a church organizing uh, specific organized acts of service because all of you are so busy doing individual acts of of service. That would be so cool. We think of how awesome it would be if it was like, yeah, I can't get anybody to feed at Place of Peace because everybody's helping their neighbors. I would like to be a part of that church. I would like that would be awesome. How many, how many activities have you done service-wise for the church? None! Why? Well, because this week I was reading to kids at school 
I was helping my neighbor who's been sick, and I cut the lawn of this little old lady who shouts at me. (laughs) How awesome would that be? Jesus was available. Jesus was sacrificial. Jesus' acts of service were personal. He did stuff for people he knew. He did stuff for people who were in his lives. He didn't wait for the Jewish synagogues or the temple to set up acts of service. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do stuff as a church. It just means we need to do stuff as a church. So, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I have homework that I have put somewhere. Is that it? Yes, there we go. I believe that, that Jesus regularly basically reached into heaven and pulled back a little bit of part of it. I think that's what his healings were. I think that's what his feedings were. I think that's what his teaching was. It was he was bringing a little bit of heaven back. Not so much as a place, but as heaven. If you read the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, heaven is literally about us being in the very presence of God. All three analogies there. It's a garden. It's a wedding. It's a city. I love the fact in the city there's no temple. Why? Because Jesus is there. We don't need a temple when God's there. Heaven is about us being perfectly connected with God. I'm not saying it's not a place. I'm saying he didn't bring back a place. It's not like Jesus said. Now, in Bathsheba, there's, there's this little small square-inch spot about a foot wide that is just where heaven is. What I mean is he brings back acts, acts of heaven. I think I just said acts, didn't I? <laughs> acts. Um, so here's my encouragement. If we're supposed to be Christians, if we're supposed to be followers of Christ, then we should be doing things like him. I think the disciples responded with like, what? (laughs) Who, me? But then later on, they responded with, oh, Jesus healed people. Guess what I can do? I can heal people. (laughs) And you'll see example after example in the book of Acts where the disciples heal people in the name of Christ, where they do miracles in the name of Christ, when they do extraordinary things in the name of Christ. And I think it's because they're reaching up into heaven and they're doing exactly what Jesus did. This is a map of Stevens Point. I tried to get far enough out, but I do not think I'm far enough out. Oh, no, I am. You guys are right there, aren't you? Is that you? Okay. Uh, Because it's this one. I didn't get you on this one. Nope. This is a map of Stevens Point. It may not have your home, in which case I would encourage you to print out your own map, okay? Here's the homework. Jesus fed people and he involved the disciples and the disciples probably responded wrongly when they were like, where are we going to get the bread and such? Because I think Jesus was waiting for them to be like, let's do it. So this week, let's do it. Here's your map. What I encourage you to do is to do acts of... Would you mind passing out since you just put your hand up? There we go. You take the good side, you take the bad side. Okay? (laughs) Take your map this week and let's try and serve God in as many different places and in as many different ways as we can. And every time you serve God, as in you do an act that is sacrificial, that is available, and that is personal, I want you to mark on your map like this. Because what should be happening is we should begin to cover the, uh, the, the city of Stevens Point with acts 
of love that are following Jesus Christ. And next week, in the middle right here, I'm going to have a hand-drawn version of Stephen's Point. Not a very good hand-drawn Stephen's Point, but it is going to have the roads and such. And what I would love for you to do is to come in and mark where you served. So therefore, you have a map. And I'm not meaning by that that it has to be a specifically religious act. What I'm meaning is, if you serve God in the midst of your business, and you serve those who are created in His image in the midst of your business, by doing something that is about you being available, by doing something that is about you being sacrificial, that is doing something about you being personal, and you do that, and you bring a little bit of heaven down to this little home where you are working on somebody's... Actually, I guess the weather's at the point where you're not working on heating or air conditioning right now, are you? Where you're working on their ice machine. It's your market now. If, if you serve your teachers, if you serve your students, if you serve your coworkers, if you serve your neighbors, if you serve those that you, you see in the community, mark it down. Because we were created in the image of a God who came here not to be served, but to serve. So before I end, does anybody have anything that needs to be added? Then this week, let's cover Stephen's point in service. Pray with me and let's sing. Jesus, help us to serve you and show our love for you by being like you. You met people's needs. Help us to do that too. Pray this in your name. Amen.